Hello and welcome to Best of Shows, a weekly conversation about the biggest things happening on the small screen and a guide to what TV is and is not worth your time. I'm Kristen Baldwin, TV critic at Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined by my fellow EW critic and TV junkie, Darren Franich. Hi, Darren. Hey, Kristen. How's it going today? Let me answer for you. It's going bad. Is this it? Is not, this is not going to be one of those fun episodes yeah. where we hang out and talk about how much we love things. Oh, Quite yeah. the opposite, I we, would say. I feel like we're going to work out a lot of our rage today. <laughs> a lot. It's going to be cathartic. I feel that about the shows that we're talking about. It's going to be very cathartic. Uh, yeah, and I feel like we should just dive right in and just um, start raging out. So let's kick things off. This is our What's New segment in which Darren and I talk about this week's most notable new and returning show premieres. So our first show is a drama premiering March 19th on NBC called The Village. There's a well-known rule in Hollywood. If something works, you should try to replicate it again and again and again. For TV, the most recent successful something is NBC's own This Is Us. And now we're starting to see other shows trying to emulate that same style of multi-generational family drama. First came ABC's quote-unquote emotional mystery, literally that is what they call it, A Million Little Things, which is a moderate success. It's getting a season two. And now NBC is launching The Village, a multi-generational drama about family. But this is a found family, Darren, a group of people who live and love together in a Brooklyn apartment building called, you guessed it, The Village. So our entry point into The Village is a soldier named Nick Porter, played by Warren Christie, and he moves into the building after recovering from a significant war injury. Other characters include the building's super, Ron, played by the lovely Frankie Faison, and his wife Patricia, played by the fabulous Lorraine Toussaint, as well as a single mother and nurse, Sarah, played by Michaela McManus, and her rebellious daughter, Katie, played by Grace Van Dien. And this is where things get interesting. She is the daughter of Casper Van Dien. That's so crazy. Unfortunately, this is the most interesting thing about the show. Um, (laughs) The Village features multiple interlocking storylines involving big emotional stuff like starting over after a divorce, struggling to raise a happy child, the heartbreak of aging, undocumented immigration, and of course, romance. Much like This Is Us. The Village has a big twist at the end of the first episode, and the show is also aggressively uh, earnest, and it works very, very hard to tug at the heartstrings, much like This Is Us. And my God, did I want to murder everyone on it, Darren. (laughs) Maybe it's just because I'm cynical and jaded, and I've watched too many TV shows that were clearly pitched as just like that hit show you love, but different. But if a show is going to be as mawkish and manipulative as this one, it had better have some humor. And The Village has none, unless you find jokes about dirty old men ogling dance teachers funny. Um, Darren, please stop me before I set myself on fire. Kristen, I've seen my fair share of Hallmark Christmas movies. Mm -hmm. And The Village makes Hallmark Christmas movies look like they are dark and depressing, (laughs) like Russian three-hour melodramas. Um, I was so confused watching the pilot of The Village. Uh, It is set in an apartment building that has never and will never exist in the New York City that I know, um, where every single person knows each other and is up in everyone's building. 
business. Yeah. And, and, and you know, listen, we all have our own experience of, of, of New York City. Um, you know, I myself uh, never talked to any of my neighbors, which, nope. is, which is my fault. It's on me. I, I should have been a more open person at that time in my life. Um, but uh, I do think there's a social contract underpinning uh, most of New York City, whereby you're not you're not in people's business to the extent that people on the village are. Yeah. And I have to say, Kristen, I thought the big twist, because you, you told me there was a twist involved in the show. <laughs> I legitimately thought the twist was going to be, oh, like, they're all in a cult. Like, because... <laughs> The pilot. I episode, would watch that show because the pilot episode. You know, it, it, we're sort of following the character played by Warren Christie, who has uh, he's come back from war. He has lost a leg. He's struggling through a lot of things. The people in the village. First of all, he just kind of gets this apartment for for reasons that I, I'm not. I don't think are totally 100 percent made clear. Um, and everyone is just so like you know kind to him and so like you know hey like you know we have a like a monthly party up on the rooftop and everyone which is already like what are you? even talking and, about and, and and truly the only thing i could think of was how in rosemary's baby like all the neighbors <laughs> are like all up on on rosemary all the time and eat I, your I was, chocolate moose i i legitimately thought and it's even better because when you watch the show that way uh you know you mentioned how frankie Faison is very much the sort of patriarch yeah. of, of of the building he gives a speech about like you know you've come here and you're starting over and i really thought at the end of the speech he was going to say okay and now it's time for the ritual sacrifice you know i, like, I would just, that's a show i would watch but it's just it's just you're tapping into you know i'm having some fun here because i didn't have any fun with, with the no. show but like i only i could only watch the first episode of it does the sincerity like lighten at all as it no. goes no no it does not and god help me darren it breaks one of my cardinal rules i'm not gonna like really get into the details but 9-11 comes up as a Ooh. sort of significant plot point, just as it did in A Million Little Things. And that makes me so crazy because I just think about it's infuriating to me that TV writers sitting in L.A. somewhere are now like, OK, we need a quote unquote emotional turning point for somebody. Let's just go to the 9-11 well. And when it's, it's like when it's that cheap. Yeah, that is just not well. It's, done. It, that is not good. It's just infuriating. And, you know, then I start like raging out in my head. Like, were you people here? I was here during 9-11. I was in New York and you don't have the right to. Blah, blah, blah. And I know that's like a crazy Clint Eastwood get off my lawn type thing. But on the other hand, it's just like it's not necessary. It's not necessary. And it's just infuriating to me. So, no, there's 9-11. There's, people say things like there's always a way around every obstacle. You just have to care enough to find it. No, you um, don't. That's not true. No, I know. <laughs> It is literally not true. There's not, sometimes there's not a way. There, somebody else says, I have a lot of issues with war. Like at that point, I started slacking okay. you frantically. Like, okay. I can't, I can't, so, I can't. So so the person who says that is Katie, uh, the sort of uh, a younger character played by Casper Van Dien's daughter, which is still so, so crazy to me. And even Kristen, like the styling around her. Yeah. I felt like I was watching like, like is the other twist that this is actually like a, 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 an, alien civil, an alien civilization yeah. doing a poor simulation of 20th century <laughs> teenagers? Because like she's wearing a kind of 90s flannel shirt but she's really into like the peace sign which like I, I would identify as more of a 60s thing and it just you know it's it just it, she's such a bizarre character and what's happening with her is extremely melodramatic in the worst way yes um, but even just certain individual scenes 
they're just kind of laughable. Um, you know, her mom has been single for a very long time, and there's a scene where she's working at the VA, and a, a, a kind of kindly older lady, uh, played by an actress who I forget her name, but she's great. She sort of jokes like, you know, this this older man just died. His grandson is here, and he's pretty attractive. You should go flirt with him. Now, I, I thought in the scene, I was like, oh, this this is a funny little scene. Of course, she's not going to do that. It's just you know, it's meant to kind of create a dynamic right, between right. these characters. Then she goes and flirts with this guy right next to his grandfather's deathbed. <laughs> and, he, and he goes on a date with her. It's just, I don't know. Everyone seems that it, it, it has that kind of halfway lobotomized aspect to it where it seems like it's reaching so hard to be sweet and sincere. And it yeah. just comes off as very saccharine. I, 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 yeah. I think. And it's really like, and by the way, he's a pastry chef and he smells like pastry. Like, really? <laughs> really? <laughs> You had you just had to add that detail, like that he smells like pastry because this whole thing wasn't sickly sweet enough. But okay, fine, sure, whatever. The um, characters on this show literally smell like pastry. That's that's the kind of show that the village is. There is one character we haven't mentioned, Darren, and I'd almost like I almost want to leave him out of it because uh, I feel like he deserves so much more. But maybe we should talk about uh, the actor who plays Enzo, the old man. That's Dominic Chianese. Is that how you say his name? Uh, uh, Junior. Junior from The Sopranos is yes. in this show. Uncle June. Uncle June, who is like a fantastic actor. And he is reduced to like uh, just telling stupid jokes and like being a kind of randy old man. And I don't know. It just made me so sad. Yeah, uh, and it's even stranger how we meet him because um, you kind of mentioned that there's a seed of <laughs> these sort of like older men ogling a yoga instructor. Yes. And it's just the kind of scene that like, you know, again, on a show that's driving so hard to be like very sincere and serious minded, it just comes off all wrong. Like it's not even funny. It's just kind of leering. And I mean, I have to say, I, I love him so much. Uh, I, I watched a lot of Boardwalk Empire just for the few scenes <laughs> w- when he would appear, uh, which is the definition of insanity. Um, but yeah, I just y- you just feel that, um, you know, in every direction on this show, it, it has that this is us imitation quality yes where it just seems like every scene is going for the full heartstring tug yeah and you you need to be able to kind of balance it a little bit and we may talk about this a little later but like this is a certainly in its sort of best incarnations it didn't always feel like it was like this scene is the scene where we explore the twist that will be that will ensure that you are crying it's right it's all a little too much and i think it's the definition of what you were talking about earlier when you're creating Reading something that is so totally going for an imitation, yeah. all, you know, you, you, all you get are, are the sort of fumes of that. It, it doesn't feel as if any of these characters are, are as well defined uh, as on This Is Us. Yeah, and there's just no humor. I mean, as as sort of cloying as This Is Us can be, and again, we'll talk about that a little later. It has some very funny moments and some very sort of funny actors. In this case, it's just schmaltz and corny and uh, sickly sweet people who smell like pastry. And and the twist in season one, in the first episode, is so ludicrous. It's, it's like, so at, dumb. At that point, at, at that point, I was also kind of like, oh my gosh! Like, is the twist that like everyone is secretly? Well, I shouldn't spoil it, but you know what? I I will spoil it. Is the twist that everyone is secretly related? Like, is, is that going to be what we find out about the? Village, like. That would be amazing. It's just some like weird inbred colony, and that's why they all live together and know each other's business. I mean, I'd we watch are, that. 
We are all family. We are all family. One of us. One of us. Anyway, The Village premieres Tuesday, March 19th at 10 p.m. on NBC. Check it out if you want to be enraged. Or maybe, you I don't know, if you you like a good earnest drama, this might be for you. It just really, really, really was not for me. Speaking of inbred families, Kristen... (laughs) which is my favorite segue that we've ever done on this show. Uh, Arrested Development just returned last Friday with the eight episodes uh, that close out its fifth season. Arrested Development needs no introduction, but I'll try anyways. Uh, This is the TV series created by Mitchell Hurwitz, which began back in 2003 and has followed the continuous downward spiral of the Bluth family, a relatively well-to-do family in Orange County uh, that's become ever more relatively not so well-to-do over the course of five seasons. Uh, The first three seasons of the show were fantastic and aired between 2003 and 2006. Uh, It returned in 2013 for a fourth season that was very strange um, and a bit of a big swing and uh, not a a season of television that I love, but I kind of respected it, um, perhaps perhaps wrongfully. Uh, (laughs) Last year, there were eight new episodes. Now we have these eight episodes that I think can just finish it off now, Kristen. Um, I have to say, uh, I, I, I was one of the people who watched and rewatched and rewatched the original run of the show, and I, I, I hold it incredibly dear to my heart. And there are whole corners of my brain that are dedicated to just random lines and quotes from the first three seasons. Um, what we have here, I, I'm sad to say, it, it's a real pale imitation of what it used yeah. to be. Um, in the kind of second half of the fifth season, uh, the Blues are still struggling through a lot of the things they've been going through in the fourth season and in the first half of the fifth season. Um, there are still a lot of jokes about building a wall on the southern border, which, in fairness, they were doing that before that became official presidential like mandate. Right. So, but even so, a lot of that stuff feels a little tired. And the sad thing is that um, just the cast, which at one time you would have said was one of the funniest casts in TV history, um, they all just look a little desperate now. Yeah. Uh, and you, you, you get the sense that they're not too sure about the material. Some of them are going way over the top. Some of them seem to try to be actively hiding in plain sight. Um, I did not like uh, the episodes <laughs> of the, in the second half of the fifth season, Kristen, but uh, wh- wh- what's your mileage with this show in general now, and uh, how did you feel about the episodes that you watched? Well, I, you know, I love the original run of the show as well. It, to me, it felt um, sort of the closest that we had gotten in the modern era to Soap, which is one of my favorite shows, and uh, you know, it even had uh, Job with his puppet Franklin always reminded me of Chuck and Bob, on soap. Um, and Mitch Hurwitz did work with Susan Harris, who created soap um, when they were on the Golden Girls. But, you know, it, so at its best, it was fantastic. And it really was, you know, one of a kind. And then I, you know, the the first uh, revival season four, obviously, it was kind of choppy because the cast was so busy, they had to basically shoot them all separately. And it, you know, it didn't really it wasn't great. But I was like, Oh, okay, I, you know, it, it's still nice to have it back. And then when season five arrived in the wake of some bad press, you know, in February of 2018, Jeffrey Tambor was fired from transparent for alleged sexual misconduct. And then a few months later, while promoting uh, the new season, the cast of Arrested Development gave an interview in which Jessica Walter started crying, talking about the verbal abuse that she had experienced from uh, Jeffrey Tambor on the set. And Jason Bateman, during that interview, and it's all on audio and people listen to it, he started like defending Tambor's behavior. God bless uh, Aaliyah Shakwad, who was the only one at that 
interview going, um, it wasn't okay. It's not okay. So at that point, I kind of was like, casino clap, I'm out of here. And I just didn't really, um, you <laughs> know, I, you. <laughs> I just didn't I really, that, I think that, I, I think that y y your exact headline started with the phrase, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Jason Bateman. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Jason Bateman. I no longer feel the need to watch this, uh, these episodes and, you know, watching the new ones that just, uh, that just dropped, I realized I really did not make a mistake. I mean, as you said, to me, it almost seemed like everyone seemed really like distracted, like they're not fully present during the scenes. Like they, it seems like they're like doing their grocery lists in their head or just like <laughs> they're, they're walking through it. I think they all know it's not funny. The sight gags are, you know, tired. Um, and then there's this whole, you know, plot about Job being gay, but not really being gay. And honestly, Darren, in 2019, are we really doing jokes about the gay mafia? Yeah, well, and so, so okay, there's there's a gay mafia on this season of the show. And, and, and that sequence where they're introduced sums up a lot of the things that just feel very off. And it's, it's strange to watch because this was a show that at its peak, it's just kind of like the control group for being able to do every kind of comedy simultaneously. You right. know, like there are episodes in the first run that do visual gags and wordplay and like, you know, what you would have said at the time was kind of office style, almost mockumentary humor mixed with stuff that was very absurd and very surreal. So in the new season, Joe runs afoul of the gay mafia, which is a sort of, you know, it's a reference to, among other things, the like, you know, crazy Michael Ovitz reference many years ago to the notion of there being a gay mafia. And like, you know, they are basically just meant to be flamboyant homosexual stereotypes who also happen to be mobsters. And it's just kind of dumb. And <laughs> like, you know, it, it's not funny in like an over the top way. And it's not funny in a subtle way. And, you know, it's strange because, you know, fans of the show will point to the fact that, well, like Tobias in the early seasons, you know, th 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 there was an element of kind of like, you know, gay panic to his whole storyline. Right. He's essentially a, you know, very probably a, a gay person or at least someone on the sexual spectrum who didn't seem to realize that or want to acknowledge that. But that was always just handled in a really, I would just say like wonderful and almost British way. Where yeah. it was just this, this sort of barely spoken thing. And here, you know, Job is kind of struggling with this and it's not that funny and it's just, it, it just and it's a subplot that won't end. I, I think that is the, my, my main problem with this half of the season. You know, they, they filmed all of this stuff um, as one big chunk and decided to release season five in two halves. And I really just think that that, you know, for, for this show, when you go back to the end of the third season, there was such a momentum to it because you could feel that, like, they knew it was all coming to an end. And it just felt like they were just writing and performing their way yeah. just trying to fit in so much stuff. And here you just feel like you feel these jokes were written two or three years ago, you know? Yeah. And that's just, it, it's just a strange feeling to have. Um, and yeah, I, and even, you know, Kristen, I, I, God help me, watched the finale, um, which is a very <laughs> long episode of television. Uh. And in the finale, there was a like 80 second plus moment of Ron Howard sort of narrating you through a montage of what's happened on the show recently. And it's just like, this is a lot of time you're spending on a recap now. Like, I don't know, there's the, yeah. the sort of like narrative flabbiness of it is, is astonishing to me at times. It does seem like they took everything uh, that worked and just kept 
uh, adding more of it. Like, you know, the narrator was really, you know, incredible when it first started and just the idea, like he would break in and, you know, this is going to be great narrator. It wasn't, you know, whatever, like that, (laughs) that was fresh and new and exciting, but now they've kind of like, they're overdoing it. They're overdoing, you know, everything with Job. They're overdoing, like, I don't even understand what's happening with, I mean, granted, I missed the first half of the season, but like, it literally did not make any sense to me what was going on with the Bluth business. And there's something about teeth and 3D printers. And then like, uh, Buster, he's in jail, but he's not in jail. I, it, it just it just seemed like they weren't even really, they were just throwing everything at the wall. Yeah. My, my recommendation to everyone um, who, who has loved Arrested Development, uh, and from, from what I've just, from just kind of anecdotal conversations, a, a lot of people I know who loved the original show didn't even seem to realize that there were new episodes last yeah. year, um, which I, I think it's unfortunate and it kind of speaks to how a show that really was a classic word of mouth phenomenon, uh, there, there's no more words in the mouth now, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess I'd recommend, if you're still interested, it's sort of just worth just skipping to the last five minutes or so um, because there is a sort of like moment at, at the conclusion that if, if nothing else, like if you watched season four, um, th- th- there was a mystery that kind of began in season four six years ago oh now that like this season does sort of finally answer. So if if you feel like there's like, okay, like with this lingering thing, like, you know, then do just skip through a lot of the stuff because unfortunately you're not missing much anymore. I mean, I don't even even remember what I wore yesterday so I'm not sure how I'm supposed to remember a mystery from six years ago but um god bless them it's 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 one it's one of the longest running mysteries, uh, which will probably only be beaded by uh, Better Call Saul doing their once a year check in on uh, Future Gene, Future in, Gene. The, in, in the black and white era. And, at Cinnabon, <laughs> my, my favorite show on television is the five minutes each year that's about Gene. Uh, <laughs> so if everyone if anyone wants to check out the uh, newest, latest, and leastest batch of Arrested Development episodes, they are streaming on Netflix now. All right, so that's a lot of rage, uh, Darren. Let's take a quick break and after the break there will be more rage when we talk about this is us now it's time for tv talk where darren and i talk about tv specifically the most notable tv related news of the week on march 26 this is us will air its third season finale entitled r&b Darren, as we've discussed earlier in the podcast, This Is Us has been a huge hit for NBC. Over the last two and a half years, the industry has held the Emmy-nominated family drama up as a shining example of how broadcast TV can still create big, mass-appeal, game-changing shows. But now that we're, you know, two and a half or almost three seasons in... For me, the show seems to be in a treacherous storytelling loop, and it feels like the writers have become dependent on or beholden to the tricks and tropes that felt so fresh when it premiered in 2016. I wrote about this back in October, where I said that it felt like the show had become an emotional procedural, and I said, just as we watch Criminal Minds to see the BAU team hunt down the psycho of the week, or we watch Law & Order SVU to witness Olivia Benson sending pervs to prison, we can... Tune into This Is Us, certain in the fact that there will be one moment every episode that will, no matter what, fill our tear ducts to the brim. It's predictable, it's comfortable, and man, is it starting to get boring. So Darren, the most recent episode, 
may have done me in for good. Uh, Waiting Room was a bottle episode, God help us, in which the Pearsons and several Pearson adjacent characters sat together in the hospital waiting for news about Kate, who had, of course, gone into premature labor because nothing good can ever happen to her. As the hours dragged on and tension and exhaustion took over, everybody became the worst versions of themselves, meaning we had to spend 44 minutes with these occasionally annoying characters being fully annoying. Uh, The show keeps hitting all the same notes. Kevin's an addict who can't cope with his feelings. Randall's a myopic dreamer. Rebecca is a saintly vessel of tragedy. And for God's sake, when is it going to be Beth's turn to be happy? Darren, I've been working up to this for a while, but I think I am brave enough now to say this at last. My name is Kristen Baldwin, and I officially hate This Is Us. You've turned on it. I've turned on it. It's finished. It's over. It happened. I'll probably still watch just for the rage release, but yeah, I hate it. Kristen, uh, I have not been following along closely with This Is Us for a very long time now. Uh, I, I, I admired what I saw of it in season one, but kind of just felt that it wasn't for me. There's a certain uh, there's a certain quality of uh, emotion getting, uh, you know, happy, sad, tear causing television that I do not like. But one of my favorite things about the last year or so has been tracking uh, your relationship with This Is Us. <laughs> Uh, which uh, I, 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 it was interesting for me dipping back in for this bottle episode after really having followed it through your, uh, you know, fascinating experience of it this season. Um, I love a good bottle episode, Kristen. Um, I yeah. think it's the best way to just see the, the bare elements of a show kind of laid out in front of you when you just have all the characters on a show all in one room. Um, and I, I, I was very fascinated to find that even in a sort of bottle episode environment where, you know, it's not doing the sort of time tossing storytelling style. It's very kind of rigidly chronological. Um, you know, there's not really any music in the episode um it still to me felt like certainly what i would describe as the vintage this is us episodes as far as just like needing to constantly build this emotional catharsis and you know there were big speeches and there was the moment where um you know beth just decides to start talking about uh their personal family business with the whole larger family for for no for no apparent reason and well you know out of resentment i think because like uh you know, he wanted to, she was angry at Randall and the family's all up in the, each other's business. And I think that was Beth's, uh, why am I defending it? Go on. <laughs> but, 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 but no, no, no. It's fair enough. For you, it's fair enough for you to defend it. And in fairness, like, um, you know, as you've said on, on many occasions, I think, um, Beth and Randall feel like the most real people to me, or at least certainly are, are the people that it's easiest to get invested. Um, but, um, you know, then you just have moments like, where in a in a room where it's the present day and they should be focused on one thing who is the sort of main topic who comes up and, and seems to sum up the whole show that's right it's jack everything goes back to jack eventually <laughs> rebecca gives a big speech about jack and and i just it just felt very inorganic to me yeah. um you know again in my experience of the show which is more limited than you this show its perspective seems to be that like people are constantly one second away from vividly recalling and feeling intensely sad about all the worst things that have ever happened to them. I mean, this and, family certainly is like they're yeah, they're and, incapable and, and, of exactly. anything else. It, 
And, you know, I mean, again, I don't want to say this is certainly at its core, it is kind of like a grief narrative, but it just feels as if um, this is not a show where people are ever chill, you know, like, this is not a show where it's, this is not a show where it's ever just like a Tuesday. Right. And, and it's interesting because, because I mean, very often in a bottle episode, certainly like this one where you just have people literally all in one room, it tends to sort of cut that stuff down a little bit. Um, and it was striking to me to see that, like, it still seems to be going for those emotional procedural notes that yeah. you're describing like it, it still is just constantly building to this sort of symphonic outpouring of emotion and I I, I found that to be a little hard to take um, as this season in general like do you think like are there individual episodes that have been better or, or has it been for you just a general kind of downturn in, in quality over the last year I mean it really started uh, at the beginning of the season and you know when I wrote that uh, piece in October I think we were three or four episodes in and I was already like oh man and we are really starting to feel like the show is in a rut. Um, and, you know, honestly, now that it's it's really in the back half of the season gotten worse for me because it, they're just hitting the same notes. Like, we literally, Randall and Beth are fighting about the same thing they fought about, like, you know, three months ago or whatever it was. Uh, and uh, Kevin's an addict again. Like, really? We, it was already annoying enough. I mean, I know once you're an addict, relapse is part of the process. Blah, 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 but, like, from a storytelling standpoint, like, there is nothing new here. And, uh, I mean, I... Everybody saw it a mile away when he walked into the freaking waiting room and he had a water bottle. And I was like, oh, it's vodka. And then it was supposed to be. And then it was revealed as this big twist at the end when Zoe was like, his water bottle was filled with vodka. And it's like, well, of course it was. He's an addict. Um, do you but think, yeah. Do you think, Kristen, um, I wonder if part of the issue is, and this relates to something that bizarrely um, I, I felt a little bit watching, and this is going to be a big pull, but watching the Captain Marvel movie. Um, <laughs> it's It's weird to me how the idea of like twist storytelling um, has become so central to, to really even the most mainstream versions of, of whether it's a superhero show or in this case a, a family drama um, because it's weird to me that even in this episode it all seemed built around like moments like that like moments yeah. where it was just like okay like you know whoa like it was uh, it was vodka the whole, it was it was tequila the whole time or it was vodka the whole time and just like <laughs> and it's just weird because you know it it creates this feeling in this episode certainly of just kind of like it just seems like you're biding your time until you get to that twist really and this episode in its defense maybe you could say it was doing that because you know they're literally in in the in the waiting room you know waiting to hear about uh, you know what's happening with Kate and what's happening with her pregnancy um but it just it's strange to me that this show seems like it feels the need to always have a twist like that. Yeah. Is that something that has kind of played out over the last Absolutely. Um, and like, run of episodes? And I think that's, you know, I feel bad for the writers because clearly, you know, Dan Fogelman and the team that work on this show, they're very talented. They created something, you know, really special. But I do feel like you can almost, they just seem to have these golden handcuffs on of like, we've got to do the same thing every episode because that's what made this show a hit. And like, it's just not, it's not necessary. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, why you don't have to have a big like aha or gotcha moment at the in every episode. It's not it's just not necessary. And it's now it's just like outright annoying. Uh, and <laughs> I just, you know, it makes me resent the show. Um, and I don't know. I just wish that they would uh, 
be more confident in these characters and let them develop as opposed to I just think they're, you know, they're just now on these sort of story storyline treadmills where they're just going over the same territory over and over again. And I mean, I get it. You know, it's not easy to sustain a quality story, but like maybe try new territory. We've done the really sad tragedy. You know, we've done the now Jack's brother is alive. Okay, great. Another family mystery. But like, maybe maybe there's just something else. Maybe there's just something else that is not like this deep, earth-shaking, uh, emotional, uh, you know, holocaust. Yeah. Also, I wish my family had like multiple family mysteries. You know? I know. Like, I mean, it's like there's a whole there's a whole like you know Sherlock Holmes canon of, of mystery lurking within the, the the Pearson family. And what's I've been treated to know, Kristen, just looking ahead, the show is still getting like really good ratings. Um, are there any shows that are kind of in this equivalent space? that like have found a second gear that you would point to as an example of maybe a better option um because for me i mean in a very different way i always think about how the oc in its first mm-hmm. three seasons you know it was a it, it was a family drama slash comedy that was also about high school and in its third season which is where this is us is now all those elements just seem to be like like awful i mean yeah. you know, there were there were like things they were doing with the parents that were just kind of lame there were things where the kids were just lame and then in its fourth season which was great it was kind of just like you know what like it's all different now that they've graduated they're basically yep. like all adults and like it, it's, it's gonna be more romantic it's gonna be funnier um is there anything that you think this is us could or will do to sort of like shift its course that it's on right now i mean i think one of the things that makes it hard is because it's so um you know, intensely focused on this one family, you know, for a show to run a long time, something like ER went through, you know, ups and downs, but it was able to really reinvigorate itself periodically with new cast, you know, and new dynamics and new, uh, you always had some core people, but you would have new characters come in and it would make, you know, it would change and invigorate the show. Uh, Same with Grey's Anatomy, that kind of thing. Um, and you know, look, I'm going to even say yes. Beverly Hills 90210. I feel like Ooh. they went they went through you know some some ups and downs, but then eventually the college years were pretty good, and then you know. Uh, they're able to, you know, if you can shake up the mix a little bit in the cast, this that's going to be hard to do with this show uh, mm-hmm. because it's, you know, and unless they just start introducing random people, um, honestly, there was a there was a moment in a episode uh, three or four weeks ago when um, Kate and I think Kate and Randall, I can't remember, or Kate and, uh, I think it was Kate and Randall, went to the the house where they grew up. I mean, not the actual house because that burned down, but they went to the, you know, the place where it was. And the episode started with this totally other, fa- uh, just a family we'd never seen before, um, kind of having this argument about something. I can't even remember it, but I was like, ooh, I like this family. I want to know more about this family. And then they were gone, you know, because it turned out like, oh, they just live in the old house. And so so I would, could could this is us maybe just uh, send the Pearsons away and and focus on a new family at some point? Like I I would almost be into a, a this is us anthology where like the Pearson story is over now let's meet the Johnsons or I don't know what I just it, it's just really starting 
you know, life is interesting, but it's not that interesting. And so this one family can't have all this stuff happen to them without it getting really, really tiresome. Krista, you're 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 pitching These Are Us, and I am here for that. <laughs> I am a hundred percent here for the anthology These Are Us, where each each year it, it's a new family that experienced a hundred individual mysteries yes. <laughs> tied in with their personal family history. <laughs> I mean, why not? It can be done, and that would make uh, that would uh, make NBC happy. They could keep it on for years, like Law and Order. Um, but it's just new families, and we, you know, we just wouldn't have to deal with the same old, same old with the Pearsons. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, maybe maybe I'm in the mo- minority. I would love to hear on Twitter if people are still liking This Is Us. You can tweet at me, Kristen G. Baldwin. Tweet at Darren Franich. Um, you know, maybe people still like it, and I'm just cranky. Tweet at us and tell you how you think how you think they should fix it, and also tweet us your summary of the first season of These Are Us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> bonus bonus points if there are multiple parents with multiple family mysteries. Uh, this is us airs on Tuesdays uh, at nine o'clock. The finale is coming right up. Kristen, now uh, it's my great pleasure to introduce a special guest interview here on Best of Shows. EW Digital Director Shana Naomi Crockmall sat down with Shrill Star Aidy Bryant. Um, let's hear what uh, they had to say to each other. Aidy, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. <laughs> Very excited about Shrill. I watched all of it. Cool. Binged it almost all right in a row, wow. which was wonderful. That's nice. But tell me about how you first came to the project. Yeah, so, um, I mean, kind of a lot of things came together, but I think the main thing was that I heard that Elizabeth Banks had optioned the book, and I loved the book so much. I had read it, you know, the summer prior and was like, oh, what are they going to make, you know? And so I called my agents and I was like, do you know, are they going to make a movie? What are, what are they doing? And basically my agents were like, it's weird that you called because we just got off the phone with Elizabeth Banks's company and they called us saying you're their kind of their first choice. And so we met, we talked and we were like, let's do this. <laughs> How did that feel? Were you like excited to be the first person they were thinking about already for a project like this? Totally. Like, Thank yeah. you. Please. I don't need Absolutely. It. Yeah. And I mean, also like, I don't know, I wasn't really looking to like... I'm on SNL. I love SNL. I wasn't trying to leave SNL. I was just like excited to tell this particular story. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I wasn't looking for another show. Mm -hmm. I was really just sort of like, oh, I love this book. And I, I feel like I'm qualified to like tell this story, you know? Tell me about what the process was from there. Yeah. So, I mean, I met with Elizabeth. I met with Lindy. I met with our showrunner, Allie Rushfield. And And, you know, kind of just expressed, like, I don't want to just act. I want to help write it. I want to help produce it. And I I feel pretty strongly about that because I've been doing that at SNL for years. And it would be hard to just come back and just be like, here's your script. Go do your thing. Yeah. So and they were totally into it. And and we all clicked really well. And so we just kind of got right into it and worked on the pitch. And then we went and pitched it. And and Hulu was the winner. And we loved them. And it was kind of a perfect, perfect little lineup. And then. I mean, what was amazing was we basically we wrote a pilot script and we turned it in expecting to maybe get to make a pilot. And they picked it straight up to series from that pilot script, which was a huge, like amazing vote of confidence and thrilling for us. And it kind of worked out that basically we were going to have to make the show in my hiatus from SNL, which was basically from 
you know, the end of May to September. Mm -hmm. So we made the whole show, wrote it and shot it in that time, which is like four months. And what did your involvement end up looking like as a producer? Were you in the casting? Like how oh, yeah, everything, <laughs> were in all of it? Yeah, I was it. pretty much involved in everything. Um, yeah, I was super involved in the writing and the casting. And um, yeah, a lot of the people who we ended up working with were people or who are cast in the show or people that I knew in some way before and also a lot of the directors. Um, so Carrie Brownstein and Jesse Peretz, who directed the first two episodes, um, I knew them very well and and wanted to work with people that I had known and um and yeah so it, it kind of all the way across the board I mean I was worked on the edits I worked on the music that we chose supervising the graphics the marketing all I really was in every little decision <laughs> What was the most different about that from the work you've done on SNL um, you know, if anything, it was like the luxury of time. Like at SNL, when you write something on Tuesday, it's fully produced and shot and done by Saturday. And it's like, it is what it is. Either it's, it's never going to be perfect. And, um, and that's kind of the fun of it too. But with this, it's like, you know, you got to kind of rewatch it and be like, what if we tried editing it this way or that way, or those kinds of things, or spending so much time on our scripts and really having them ready when we were time to shoot. Like, those just felt, it felt like an absolute day at the spa to me in that way where I was just like, oh, this is a, a this joy. Is all we have to yeah. Do. Oh this my gosh. Okay. Are you kidding me? We have months to do these things. So um, that part of it was really fun. And also just getting to kind of sit with these, some, some of these like ideas and think about like, okay, is this the best way to, to show what it feels like to see a bunch of confident fat women? Or mm -hmm. is this the best, like, you know, those types of things like were really fun to kind of sit with. Mm -hmm. How much of that, as you figured out, I'm curious about you and Lindy sitting down and with other people, Yeah. when you decide how much to take from the book, which is obviously very personal and it's very much from her yeah. own life, how, like, where did you start the conversation in terms of what you were going to change or what you were going to start with, what had to go in the pilot or what didn't have sure. to go? I mean, I don't know that we had like any hard and fast rules of how we approached anything, but I think overall one of the things that made it really easy was, you know, I'm a fat woman. I've been a fat woman my whole damn life. I, I also shared a lot of these experiences and we, you know, we had other fat women in our writer's room. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the ways that we found things to kind of pick was what's universal in this story. So looking at Lindy's book, which is this like huge Bible for us mm -hmm. and pulling like, Oh, I have a thing like that too. And mine was like this and, and hers was like that. And then kind of like blending them all together. So I think the show is a really nice blend of like our writer's room, you know, and, and also a lot of my own experiences. Like in the first episode, there's a part where this like trainer grabs my wrist and is like, you actually, you have a small person inside of you that's like dying to get out. And that happened to me. Like someone did that to when I was like 17. And, you know, just kind of making it this nice like amalgamation mm -hmm. of all these different experiences to kind of, I think it landed in a really nice place where even if you're not a fat woman, I think you can identify with a lot of these like sort of uni universal experiences. Now, when that happened with you with the trainer, did you feel like you had a snappy come? I mean, in the first time they sort of meet, like she doesn't yeah. really have anything to say. It is like right. sort of a shock. I think there's always that 
question when folks are adapting things that whether based on their own experiences or someone else's, how much do you get to be sort of like the better version of yourself? Sure. Like, oh yeah, yeah, I had a great comeback that first time. I just told her exactly what I thought. Yeah. Even though she doesn't there, like how did you sort of find that balance? I mean, I think honestly, I probably handled it about the way that Annie did in the show, which is to basically say like, thank you so much, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of an insane response. Um, But I think girls are really taught to be sweet and nice and say thank you and be polite and don't... I don't know anyone really, like, no one wants to be in a frame of mind where you just always expect people to come up to you and say such a terrible thing, even if it happens. Well, and I think, you know, if you look at... I really believe that, I think that trainer thought she was helping me. Oh, sure. I think she thought she was doing me a favor and kind of helping me inspire me. And and so there's, there's a trickiness with that because there's like a good intention maybe, but it's misguided and it's misdirected and it's extremely <laughs> aggressive. Offensive. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I think my instinct when someone does something like that, no matter how it's executed, is to be like, oh, okay, thank you. Thanks for your thought. <laughs> you Thanks know? for your and, feedback. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think the nice thing about the show is, especially in that pilot episode, you get to kind of see her do it over again in a weird way. Yeah. Let's talk about the pilot some more. Sure. I thought it was... It's curious, it's interesting what you said about how they picked it up before you even shot that. After that, did you go back and was there anything you took out of it and were like, oh, we don't have to get all of that done in the first episode? Um, Gosh, that's a tough question. I don't really remember. I think it's pretty close to as written. Um, I think there were more scenes in there kind of explaining who she was or explaining things that we didn't end up needing because we knew we had six episodes to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But... But yeah, for the most part, it's it's very, very similar to what mm-hmm. we turned in. Tell me about the choice to put the abortion in that episode. Because in yeah. the book, you know, re- reading the book, like, that's obviously a really intense scene. Mm-hmm. But it's not at the very beginning, and it wouldn't necessarily, in an adaptation, have to go in the first episode. Sure. I'm curious kind of how you decided that that was super essential. I mean, it's so rare to see, especially on American television, women even talk about having an abortion, yeah. let alone actually go to have one, let alone be, it was, I don't want to, explicit isn't the right word, but it was the most sort of like specific scene about an abortion that I think I've ever seen on a oh, television show in nice. a way that was really interesting. It was really like, you're learning something in a way that doesn't feel after school specially, but <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, hey, yeah. if you've ever wondered what it's like to go do this, here's a, yeah, a pretty real possible, depiction, sure. like, depiction of what that's going to be like. Yeah. But that's a really bold choice. So why did that need to be a part of the pilot? Yeah, I mean, I think... Uh, if you, well, one of the things that we knew we didn't want to do was to make a show about weight loss or trying to diet or those kinds of things. And I think, uh, for both Lindy and I, that had been a huge part of our lives, you know, was like feeling like you had to diet and whatever. And I think for Lindy and, and in turn, Annie in the show, kind of her turning point of taking ownership over her body was her abortion. And so for us, we didn't want to have to show the years of dieting and the years of, of pain and the feeling like you can't fit in and anywhere in that same way. And so we sort of thought of the abortion as her starting place because it is the first time she gets to have ownership over her body and say, this is mine and I'm in control of what's happening to me, you know, and, and to show something on television that takes away some of the stigma and, and actually shows what I think for a lot of women is their experience with the abortion, which is the sense of relief afterwards, the sense of, of getting out of a, 
a trap, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. or being able to take control of their own body. That is kind of an empowering experience. And, and you know, of course, there are women who struggle with the and maybe have regrets. But I think by and large, that's not always the case. And certainly and yet, for you the- wouldn't feel it from the way it's often portrayed, right? Yes, like the idea exactly. of being able to present it. I think in the book, Lindy said something about it. it's like a medical. It is a, it's a medical, a medical procedure, challenge procedure yeah. that like here's a health issue Absolutely. I had is yeah. not the way that in entertainment well and people talk about people it. all over the world have medical procedures every single day to make themselves feel better or to to be healthy or to whatever and this is it's that mm-hmm. you know and I think um showing that it allowed her to reflect on what she wants for her life going forward it does make sense as a starting mm-hmm. place and and you know I think we could have easily shown an entire first season of her dieting and struggling and had it be the last episode but I think it is more interesting to start at the beginning and and let her suddenly take control of her life and and how that feels to do that after not doing it for your whole life how mm-hmm. hard that can be let's talk about the scene later in the show um, so if you guys haven't, or you're listening, you haven't watched all of it yet, I feel like this is, it's not that much of a spoiler, but yeah. because so much of the show and about the book is about this question of representation, yeah. right? And how if you don't see bodies that you feel like look like yours, you won't get to a place where you think of it as normal or think of it yeah. as attractive and going through that process, right? This sort of like re-schooling um, of your own mental narrative. Yeah. And there's the scene in the pool where mm-hmm. you're swimming, you're at, so you go to, your character goes to a party that's like a body positive party. Yeah, and fat all, babe like, pool party. And it's, and it's amazing. It's awesome. And you have women of like really all sizes. Mm-hmm. And then talk me through sort of like that scene in the pool and in the pool itself and how you shot it, but also how that felt and what it meant to you. Yeah. Well, I mean, in writing the show, we knew like, okay, here we're going to make, make this big fat babe pool party and we want it to feel like she's stepping into this whole other world. And and really where that came from was Lindy and I both had talked about how when we were just trying to discover our confidence, how much looking at images of fat women changed us. So looking on Tumblr or, or blogs and seeing fat women wear cool clothes and have like style and this like cool confidence that like how much we were like, oh, well, if they're doing that, then maybe I could do that. And so we were trying to think of sort of like a physical representation of what that could feel like rather than just looking at pictures online. And so there is a moment where she's like, you know, Annie's walking into this pool party and there is just sort of like this colorful world of these women of truly every shape and size and color. And like, it's, it feels like another world. It feels like magic, you know? And so we were like, okay, we have to make it look like that. We have to have colorful floats and balloons and make it this like magical thing and pretty quickly upon arriving on set it was like oh we don't have to do much here these women are that (laughs) you know like we were trying to throw this pool party but it just it became a pool party on its own and it was so overwhelming and really really special and there's a scene in in that kind of run of scenes where I'm like dancing very hard to an Ariana Grande song and it, it was so emotional and so intense and beautiful. It was overwhelming. Almost our entire crew, which some of them are like these giant burly men, like hauling lights around, were like tears in their eyes at the monitor and stuff. It was really, really beautiful. And and all the ladies who were at the pool party that day, it just became kind of the thing that we were setting out to make. And it was, it was a magical day. I want to talk a little bit about some of the other characters in the yeah. show. Tell me about casting 
your parents, Julia Sweeney and Daniel Stern, yes. were both great. Oh my God, they're so, so good. Such a great chemistry with them. How, did you have them in mind? Were you like, oh, if I ever get to cast my own parents for a show, like, how did you get to them? No, I didn't have them in mind. I had never really thought about that before. But then once we were talking about like who these characters were, Basically, Daniel and Julia were our first picks, and it was so wonderful that they both said yes, and they were both excited. I mean, Julia especially, she has not really acted for about 18 years. She basically kind of left the business to go raise her daughter. She's been living in Chicago, and I was just always a huge fan of hers and uh, and had always loved her on SNL, and I... I always thought she brought a sweetness to her characters, but also like a cutting quality, and... I saw that as part of who this character was, that she's extremely loving and extremely bright, but also has a sharpness. And and I think Julia just like killed it on that mm-hmm. front where you understand how she and Annie are similar. You understand why. That they, drives him yes, crazy. Yes, totally. Right? <laughs> it's all yeah. there. And then, you know, Lindy in her book, she writes about her father dying and it's it's extremely painful and beautiful and you understand how special of a person her father was and and we wanted someone who could kind of be that for Annie. And so, you know, Daniel came in and, and he was just like blew us away. Every take, he's so amazing and he's just a pro. He's been doing this for so long and he has such a natural ability to like find heart and ground things. Um, Yeah, I mean, I'm so thrilled about them, and I just loved working with them. It was a dream. I mean, we would, like, hang out in between takes and stuff in this little green room, and I would just, like, grill them about their past movies and all these things. It was really fun. Let's talk about these two guys, right? So you've got this boss, (laughs) Gabe, based on Dan Savage, played by John Cameron Mitchell, who's great, but is, like, a terrible person as a character in in so many ways. And then you also have you know, this kind of love interest boyfriend, Ryan. And it made me think a lot about like how in this movie, in this show with such strong women, there are still these like kind of terrible dudes and like, (laughs) who like in that back and forth. And there's all these conversations between Annie and and your friends about like, should you even have these people in your life? Sure. I don't know. What was that? Yeah. Well, I mean, find I'm that surprised because it's like they're almost say... too likable. Like yes, they're, okay. they're both yeah. like charming. They're charming. And in that way where you're like, I don't really want to root for you because you're kind of totally. a jerk. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I feel like at least with Gabe, I, who's the boss, I feel like he, there is something wonderful about him in that like he was the Annie of the past maybe, that he was the person who kind of knocked down some doors and made some changes and 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 that he really loves Annie and I think he does want to foster her and teach her, but he kind of wants her to do it on his terms. So I think there's like a lot of love there, even though he's sort of like a rough person who says it like he feels or whatever. But I... I really love him. And John Cameron Mitchell just like brought him to life. I, I really feel like it, you know, maybe it started with shreds of Dan Savage, but it, it's got, it's truly become something different. And I think John Cameron Mitchell is just like the one to do it. He's so mm-hmm. wonderful. He's like fireworks. And then, you know, with Ryan, who kind of plays my like boyfriend of the show, I, I think that's also something that women can really identify with is someone who 
on paper, they treat you badly. <laughs> yeah, you like, but, look at it, you make up a pro and con but list. But like, what? There's but. something charming about them. Yeah. And there's some, there is a connection and he makes her feel attractive, which can be really empowering in a different way. And he is attracted to her and he wants to have sex with her and, and all these things that like, sometimes that stuff can be hard to say no to because mm-hmm. it, it's like the kind of attention that, I think for a lot of women, they want, you know? And so, especially from someone who seems withholding, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I think they're, those are both complicated relationships where they're not quite bad and they're not quite good, but you understand why Annie keeps going back. Mm-hmm. Last question. What did you feel like was the moment in this that was hardest for you? I would say I'm kind of torn between two right now. One would be, in episode four, after the big, beautiful pool party, there's sort of a long speech where I talk about how it felt to see all those women and and how much time I've lost, uh, you know, hating myself, basically. And, and what does it matter to the, yeah, I'm fat. What does it matter? Who cares? Mm. And that, like, I, there was a, that was hard. That was a hard day. It, it just, it was a hard speech to give over and over again from many different angles of the camera because it was really just cut close to the bone for me, you know, where I felt like, oh, I do kind of mourn for time that I lost in my, you know, late teens and early 20s where I just hated myself. And why, you know, for what? Because a magazine told me I should? That's so pointless, you know? And then, I mean, I guess I would just also say the sex scenes, not my comfort zone, had never done that before, but also sort of felt pushed to do that because I wanted to see like a fat woman have a full sexual life with dignity that I hadn't maybe always seen. And, and, and so anytime I felt nervous about doing that, I was like, okay, I'm doing it for a cause, (laughs) you know, it's not just about my butt or something. Edie, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> Love to leave that's it on a, the butt note. I mean, we're, we're not going to go anywhere from that. Why not stop right there? <laughs> okay. um, Shrill is on Hulu. You can watch all six episodes of it now based on the book by Lindy West. And yes. Thank you so much for joining us at EW thank today. Thanks again, Shayna. That wraps it up for this week's episode of Entertainment Weekly's Best of Shows. Listeners, wherever you find your podcasts, you can find us, iTunes, Stitcher, all those great places. Give us a rating. Give us a review. We review things all the time, and we love reviews of us. Uh, whether they're good or bad, we want to hear from them. They can be okay. You know, it's it's okay to give out just okay reviews. Uh, and you can also tweet at us if you have any thoughts or opinions or counter-arguments, or you just want to hang. Remember, we are very responsive to you on Twitter. Uh, and we love doing segments based around things that you suggest. Uh, she's at Kristen G. Baldwin. I'm at Darren Franich. Till next week, I should have a catchphrase, but I don't. So goodbye. Goodbye.